0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Now our series has been going through chapters 1 through 3, and we are soon to be done. We're almost done with the first half of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, and all of it has been looking at what God has done for us. So I want to point, as we have done, that chapters 1 through 3 are really God's presence by Him working for us, which is his transcendence. He is the one who works for his people. And as we see in Ephesians, he's actually granted his presence to us and in us. In two weeks, sorry, next week, two weeks, this one and the next week, we're going to finish Ephesians 1 through 3. Next week, Todd is going to be talking about the doxology, verses 20 and 21. This passage is really the hinge that connects God's presence with the transformation of the changing of God's people. If you do not get this prayer, you will move into a focus on changing people in our own efforts, and our own strengths. That's the danger. And so he prays in the passage today that God would give them strength by the Spirit to do the very things and to apply the very things that must be there based on What he's already said. So I want to quickly review what he's already told us. If you think in chapter 1, he's talked about all the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And then he prays that we would understand those things. That our minds and the, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. That we would know these things. Then we looked at chapter 2, and chapter 2, the first part, 1 through 10, is really talking about the individual transformation that God does in the hearts of people. We were all dead in our trespasses and our sins, and God spoke to us and caused us to be made alive by the great power that he worked in bringing Jesus back to life. He says, and now that is all to bring you into a new creation relationship with God that he has done in bringing Jew and Gentile together in one new man, which is the church. And so we looked at things that God has called us as his people into his kingdom, into his family, and ultimately into his temple. And then if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, and Jasper mentioned it last week, he says, for this reason. If you look at the passage today, 3.14, he says, for this reason. So last week, Jasper Got to explain this kind of digression that he had of explaining how the gospel was a mystery that is now revealed to the apostles and prophets in the New Testament, understanding now that God is doing all of this stuff in Jesus Christ, that it is through him that we have confidence and that we are called together and we actually proclaim the manifold wisdom of God to the angelic world. That's amazing. And so now he's coming back to the very thing that he was saying. And so he says, oh, sorry, okay, let me get get focused again. Because nobody gets scatterbrained when they're talking about Jesus and how awesome he is. But I'm going to read the passage, and this is what we're going to look at today, starting in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom of God, What we see here immediately is that we need the Spirit of God and his strength to live, chapters 4 through 6. If, if I could summarize what we're going to be looking at, and if I could look, put up on the screen the little saying that we're going to do, is a changed heart by God will bring a changed life for God. So again, you have to understand that a changed heart, so God's presence transcendence, a changed heart by God, is the very means by which your life will be changed for God. You cannot do this without having this. And so his prayer is that the Spirit would continually apply and bring to remembrance the very thing that he has done right over there. Okay. But the first thing he asked specifically or a thing that he shows us specifically, is that we need the Spirit of God and the strength of the Spirit so that you and I would continually have confidence that the Father hears us. So We see that in 14 and 15. Again, the idea of him saying, for this reason, I would, I would argue that he goes back to what he's talking about in 2, where he talks about how through the Spirit we have access to the Father, And then he looks at how God has brought this all about, and he goes, now this is the reason that I bow my knees before the Father. Look at what God has done for us in making us a dwelling place. And so I'm gonna bow my knees. And so I want you to think of this. A normal way that we pray is usually sitting. Some of us stand to pray. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. So he's getting down. He's overwhelmed by this, and he just drops down. And this is a sign of sincere earnestness, emotion, and he just gets down. He says, I I get down on my knees before my father, before the father. And he's almost begging God to do this. But he also knows that God will do this. And what he says is, I bow my knees before the father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And I want us to think about that, because what he's saying here is, God is the one who created every single family. Person, yes, and sustains all of them. But he uses the term entire family or the idea of a whole family. And I would argue that it's talking about not only the family in heaven, which could be angels and the saints who have gone before, but also those who are still on earth. Because God is continually drawing his family to himself. And they're named, meaning they are called for a specific reason. I think of Ephesians 2.10 where he says we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Think of when he changed the name of Abram to Abraham. He named him the father of many nations because he had a specific purpose that he would be fulfilling. He changed the name of Cephas to Peter and he made the statement on this rock, I will build my church. The changing of a name is significant because God is telling him a specific purpose that they have. So he says all of us have a specific purpose. He's named all of us. I think of how he calls all the stars by name. Each individual star has a specific purpose. And that's very significant because he wants to remind us. He says, listen, God is the one who made you. He sustained you. And he has a purpose for you. And so I bow my knees before him so that we would know this. Now, I think about Paul begging before God. This isn't the only prayer that he has. We saw one in in chapter 1, but I think how often my prayer life is not going to the Lord in such earnestness and fervency. And so I think about why, why does he have so much confidence before God, and what stops me from having confidence before God? I think about how I usually pray more fervently and more passionately on a day that I think it's a good day. Right. If I have a bad day or I've done something ridiculously sinful, then I feel like, okay, now I can't talk to God because I have to make myself okay in order to talk to him again. That's typically how we treat this. But he says the confidence before God is based on the power of the Spirit drawing us to a Father who loves us. And I think of it like this. Even, even if you waited for your best day, your best day is still tainted with sin. Can we all admit that? Even our best day is tainted with sin. I think of how our kids try to do nice things for us, and it's really a very foolish thing that they've done. Let me give you an example. Callie and I were at the hospital. Callie just gave birth to Amos. They were celebrating our kids. A great and joyful time. My son, or sorry, Nora, my daughter, when we came home, she had written us a nice note. It says, I love you, Mom and Dad. So sweet. She missed us. I mean, we were in the hospital. So she wrote, "I love you, Mom and Dad." The problem is, the location of the letter was on our white ottoman, right in the middle of our living room, in blue ink. "I love you, Mom and Dad." Thank you. <laughs> "Honey, I love it." I think the other time when my kids, my Nanny and Poppy, uh, my in-laws, their Nanny and Poppy, they had uh, a new car. They got a new car. And my kids wanted to wash the car for them. How kind. kind of wash the car. So they got out brushes and they're washing the car for them. But they forgot soap and water. So the brush is just scratching the side of the car as they're washing it. And they're like, look, we washed your car. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Thank you. Like, what do you say to that? I think like even in our best days, God still has to understand that we're, we're, we're completely unworthy to approach God. There's nothing of, of delight that we can muster in ourselves to make God thankful that we're talking to him. Every single time we talk to God the Father, it is simply because it is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is the Spirit of God who has applied the righteousness of Christ, and that is the reason alone why we have confidence before God. So we need the strength of the Spirit to continually pray and have confidence that the Father hears us. The second thing we see is that we need the strength of the Spirit for the power to be transformed. The power to be transformed. In verse 16 he says that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The first thing you see is that it's according to the riches of his glory. Let me ask you a question. How much glory does God have? Infinite. So it's according to his infinite wealth. So God has all wisdom. James tells us to ask God for wisdom. God's not going, oh, man, you're really asking for a lot of wisdom. I'm running out of wisdom over here. You guys are asking for too much wisdom. No, he's always able to give you wisdom because he has an infinite amount of wisdom. He's able to give you power because God has all power. He's not upset that he grants you power as if he's lost something. He's able to give you power. So he says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. Again, it's coming straight from God. By the Spirit to be strengthened with power in your inner being. Now, I found it very interesting. This is probably a a very important part, and I hope I convey that to you this idea of your inner being. The inner being is not something that unbelievers have. I know that psychology and psychiatry have this idea of the self and the inner man and different ideas of how we relate to our conscience. And I would say everybody has a soul, so everybody's eternal. But this particular statement of the inner being is something that God has birthed in you and is part of the new creation. This is where the spirit dwells. Okay, Unbelievers don't have this. This is something only believers have. And I'm going to argue from the Bible so that you're not saying, oh, well, that's cool, but prove it. Okay, I'll try. Ezekiel 36 says... I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is not a true statement of unbelievers. Romans 7, we see the outworking of this. He says, I find to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand to me. He says, but I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That is not a true statement of unbelievers. Unbelievers do not delight in the law of God. That's abhorrent to them. They might agree with some of the tenets of it, but the purpose of the law is to obey God. They don't want to do that. So he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I find that evil is right here with me. Galatians 5 talks about this. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, desires of the spirit against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do because, as Romans 7 says, we delight to do God's law. We want to do that. Ephesians 4, we'll talk about it in a little bit. Not today, but later, Lord willing. He says, Take off the old man, this guy, corrupt through deceitful desires. Everybody who is unsaved is blinded, and all of us still live many times in deceit. We have to put that person off. He says, renew your mind, which is what he's talking about in this passage, strengthening your inner being so that you can put on the new man, or as I would argue, Christ dwelling in your heart through faith. Again, the inner being is something that is not true of unbelievers. And let me argue this. I believe what he's saying here is not action, The inner being being strengthened is not simply so that we will do action. It is actually delight in God. It is delight in God. John Piper, in April this year, he said this. He says, The most basic distinction between the believing church and the unbelieving world is not godly decisions, good deeds, or even true doctrines, but glad delight in God himself. I have a slide right there. Let's read this again, because I want you to to grasp this. It's something... Very important, and the Lord just kind of placed this in my lap, and I was wrestling over it all week. Think of this. The most basic distinction between the believing church and the unbelieving world is not godly decisions, good deeds, or even true doctrines, but glad delight in God himself. And he goes on to explain the example of Judas. He says, you want to talk about godly decisions? Judas followed Jesus for three years while still being a lover of money and a thief, unsuspected by most of the people. He made godly decisions. Follow me. Okay. I'll follow you. Good deeds. He says, how many philanthropists do good things for people? In fact, they can outdo us in loving and caring for people that they see. Good deeds. True doctrines. He brought the example. I'm sorry, everybody in this room, even pulled all together, all of our knowledge, the devil knows more than we do about God. It means nothing to him because he has no delight in God himself. That's the difference between the unbelieving world and a believer. So if a believer says, Yeah, I've done all this stuff, you say, But do you enjoy God? Do you love God? Do you appreciate God? Are you thankful to God? The answer is going to be no. Because they can't. They cannot please God, they cannot love God. Only the Spirit can strengthen us in our inner being to actually do these things, to do these things. And I would argue that most of our focus so many times has been on outward conformity and not inward reality, and that is simply what Jesus accused people of saying. They honor me with their lips, hearts far from me, far from me. And again, as we think about what we were saying before, a changed heart by God will bring a changed life for God but a changed life for God without a changed heart by God is self-righteousness and moralism. You can't start here and get this. You have to go from here, a work of God, to come over here. So often we try to fix, as Jasper and others have mentioned, we try to fix our marriages, we try to help our kids, we try to conform our kids to something, and we're not even understanding that their very heart is needs to change, and we need to be on our knees begging God to do this work in their inner being. And the goal is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see, the Spirit is an active resident in your heart. He knows where Christ is not Lord. He knows where idols are exposed. He's walking around with a flashlight all around you all the time. Oh, there. Okay, yep, we're going to work on this. And he's constantly doing this. Imagine someone coming over your house and just going through all your stuff and saying, I'm living here now, and we're changing everything. How would you feel? That's exactly what the Spirit of God says. I'm moving in, and I'm making Christ the Lord of this place, so let's get at this. And all of us are like, oh, that's too much. Well, Ray Ortland has this great quote. I love it. It says this, Christ does not make our lives easier. He makes our lives wonderfully harder. As he cares for us with a love so great that we need strength to endure him. Isn't that amazing? He loves us so great. We need strength to actually endure his love. Because it's going to mess a lot of things up. And so by the power of the spirit, our inner being is being strengthened. Being strengthened. I think of last week. If you were to convince the people in Papua New Guinea... When we watch that e Tao video and the people are rejoicing. If you had to tell them, hey, guys, listen, sorry to say it, we got to go to church next Sunday. They'd be like, yeah, <laughs> church, we get to hear this again. I think of how many times I come and I'm like, oh, man, I need to go to church. How do I change that? I need to get on my knees and ask God by the Spirit to push the light of Jesus Christ into my heart. I can't just be like, all right, I'm just going to enjoy it. I might be able to do that, but that doesn't change my heart. The Spirit changes our hearts. F.F. Bruce has this quote as well. It says, the ministry of the Spirit is devoted to making the presence and power of the risen Christ real to those whom he indwells. So it's not just here. It's everywhere. He's devoted to this. This is all he wants to see happen is to make the presence and power of the risen Christ real to you. That's exactly what it means that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. That's what he wants. He wants Jesus to be seen more and more in you so that you would look more and more like him and so that God would receive glory through you and that you would bear much fruit. And the spirit is the only one who can enliven that. But I want us to see the next part that we need strength for is the understanding of his love for us. Because let's be honest, this is a process. This is not an instantaneous change. It's not like the Spirit takes a president and boom, everything is totally redone. Could you imagine if you did like a house renovation and you just went, boom, everything's done. You'd be like, amen. Todd Wendy would love that immediately. But it's not happening. Is it, Todd? No, you've worked very hard. Keep at it, buddy. But I think of just the reality of the process being slow and difficult. You ever try to fix things and then you realize there's more problems that you've had to deal with? Exactly. And here's the truth. The Spirit gives us strength for understanding his love for us because we have to know that God still loves us through the process of transformation. We need it. So he continues in verse 17. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Notice first that he says that you being rooted and grounded in love. One, that's past, but that's also present. You were rooted and grounded in love. You are still being rooted and grounded in love I think of that if you plant a seed, think of the parable of the sower, you throw seed in the ground and one falls on rocky soil, it cannot put its roots deep. Right? Can't do it. So when problems come, persecution comes, it shrivels. It's not rooted in love. It's not knowing that. It's saying this isn't worth it. I would rather have comfort. Then you've got this other person who's rooted and then thorns are there as well. Choke it out and it's Removed, it can't keep growing because they see, I don't know if I love Jesus and he loves me as much as the world does. I actually love the world. I'm going to pursue the world. Now granted, you do have the hard path. We're not going to talk about that one because the devil's a bird and I don't want to deal with that. Okay, so let's move over to the soil that's good. The soil is good and it says that it goes down deep. Think of that. Rooted. If if the ground was here and my hands were roots, I would want them to go as deep as possible possible to get as much of God's love as I possibly can so that all of my actions that flow out into the fruit would be based on the love of God. If you base it on simply doing things, it's going to shrivel. The next one he says is that it's grounded in love. Think of the wise and foolish builder. Again, both of these are talking about time passing. So you've got this builder who builds, and he has no foundation. Things come swept away. You've got this guy who's on a foundation. He's grounded. We know it's talking about Christ, but I think specifically Paul is drawing it to the fact that you're grounded in understanding his love. As we take the things, we're reminded of our grounding in Christ, in the love of Christ. But think of it. A tree doesn't grow overnight. You don't build a house Overnight, unless you have an HGTV show. Then all bets are off. But most of the time, it's the long game. God plays the long game. Right? And in that process, sometimes there's pruning, sometimes there's changing, sometimes there's rearranging, but God is always working. And so in that process, in our impatience and seeing change and, and victories in our life, we must understand that God still works loves us through this, okay? Another thing he prays, though, is that we would have strength to grasp or to comprehend with all the saints. Again, God is the one who gives us the ability to grasp it, because Romans 5 says that the love of Christ has already been poured out into our hearts by the Spirit. The Spirit has already poured out the love of Christ. But now he prays, I want you to know how massive it is. Now, here's a controversial little passage here because it says, I want you to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. If you have an ESV, it just kind of stops there, right? If you have the NIV, it says to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ. So they put in the words, the love of Christ. In the Greek, it just literally says, I want you to understand what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. So the question is of what? What are you talking about? I have no idea. Because then he says, and to know the love of Christ. Okay. Um, what is it? I want to argue that it's it's multiple things because I think that God's love is, is there, yes. But there's another aspect to it. And I'm going to draw from Job 11 and Psalm 139. Job 11, you can just write it down. Job 11, starting in verse 7 through 9, he says, Lord, your, your mysteries are beyond thought. Who can probe the Almighty? He says they are higher than the heavens. They are deeper than the depths. Their measure is longer than the earth, and it's wider than the sea. So you have the same measurements there. Psalm 139. David reflects, he says, God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. I rise on the wings of the dawn, or if you keep going, I guess, east? you'd No, west. If you go west, you'd always see the sunrise, right? So the, the dawn. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, again, very similar to what you're reading in Job, he says, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Let me argue this. What he's saying is, I want you to know that God's love is with you because his presence is with you. His power is with you. He is always there with you. We just argued that from Ephesians 2, that you are the temple of God by the Spirit. So everything that God is, is with you. It's in you. Plus his love. But I want you to specifically understand his love. And so he says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Think about how has already seen this love. In Ephesians 1, he talked about his love was manifested to us, that he chose us to adoption from before the foundation of the world. In love, he already predestined us to sonship. And then in chapter 2, he talks about God is rich in mercy. When we were dead, because of his great love, he made us alive in Christ. He's already evidenced two main areas. But church, do you see the love of God in all circumstances of your life? Not just in these things. Do you see that God's love is with you even if you have a report of sickness? Even if you have a report of things that are ruining, ruining what you would consider ruining your life, God is still loving you? That when things are difficult and trying, that the Spirit of God is wanting to strengthen you to know the love of God? Because I want you to see, he says it's beyond knowledge. And I love that. Paul writes in a contradiction. He says, I want you to know the love of Christ, but it's beyond knowledge. So how do I know the love of Christ that can't be known, Paul? That's because he's revealing it to you by the Spirit of God. That's exactly what he's doing. In other words, listen as parents. I think about the kids' ministry. When I teach the kids, I can tell them that Jesus loves them, and I can have them repeat to me, Jesus loves me. He died for my sins, and he rose again. That's factual information. So they know the love of Christ, but there's a difference between knowing the love of Christ and knowing the love of Christ. We would all agree on that one because if I were to say it, I would say Jesus loves me and he died for me and he rose again. And I don't deserve that because without him, I have literally nothing. That's amazing to me. My kids, apart from the spirit of God, will not speak that truth because it surpasses knowledge. So we need to pray that the Spirit would reveal these things to our kids, to our family, to co-workers. We can tell them about it, but the Spirit has to reveal it to them because it's beyond their knowledge. And that is exactly why we need the Spirit's strength. But I think of this too, how often, again, during this process, we think, God, you don't love me. I am worthless. I have done this and this and this and this. I can't, I can't keep going. And that's when the Spirit reminds us of the gospel. Listen to this quote by Tim Keller. He says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very time, very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You think you're sinful? You don't even know the depths of your sin. You know a little bit because it's frustrating to you, but it's a lot deeper. But you know what else is there? The love of Christ. And you might know the love of Christ, but it's deeper than you know. It is greater than you know. And that is the very thing that is true of a believer. You are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, You're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you would ever dare hope. That's the gospel. That's what we must keep in mind. That reminds us of the love of God. The final thing we need strength for is God's fullness to be seen in us. And notice he closes this prayer, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, the fullness of God, I would argue, is simply being filled with the fullness of God is that state of perfection and glory that God has promised to bring him out. So we know it's going to happen. We are going to be filled with all the fullness of God. We're going to be made like him because we will see him as he is. See him face to face. That's our anticipation. That's our great hope is that this mortal flesh will put on immortality and we will be fully alive in his presence. But he's also telling us that as we grow, as the Spirit does this in us, we become more like Christ. And people see more of Christ in us now. I think of what Ephesians 4.13 talks about. If you look over one page or maybe two pages, 4.13 says, Until we all attain, so God's equipped the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, and then he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So as individuals are being filled with the fullness of God, which we all are, there's a greater manifestation, even together corporately, that people would come into this building and say something like in 1 Corinthians 14, surely God is in this place. That is exactly what we want to have heard about this church. Surely God is there. That's amazing. And it's because the Spirit is strengthening His people and making them like Christ. I think of this quote by James Brownson. He says, Christians are always learning and growing toward becoming in their daily lives the kind of persons that they already are in their union with Christ. They're becoming in their daily lives, the kind of person that they already are in their union with Christ. Again, think of it. They already are this in their union with Christ. The Spirit of God is doing that in their daily life, but they already are this because of Jesus Christ. give you one example of this. Bjorn asked us this past Tuesday at the elder staff meeting. He said, guys, rate yourselves. Where are you? One to ten. One to ten, where you are. And all of us, you know, you can't go ten. That'd be crazy. You'd be like... What is going on with you? Ah, you know. But you just think we also like seven, six, maybe a four. But as I was reflecting on it, I say, you know what's true? We literally are all tens. We're functioning sevens. We're functioning fours. But we're all tens. Like what could I add to what God has done for us in one through three that would make it anything higher than a ten? Like if ten is the standard, it's probably like a fifty million. But if we were to say just ten, ten, we have everything. We're, I mean, literally, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours. We're tens. And what I'm seeing is that God is literally like taking off just the parts that are stopping the light from coming and so that the fullness of God would be manifested in us little by little, little by little, until all of this is removed, boom, and then there's just light and glory. That's amazing. That's the expectation, is that we will become what we already are. That's why he's asking the Spirit to show us these things. Give them strength, Father, to see this, to know this, and to enjoy this. That's what he's asking of God. Now, church, there is such a sweet spirit in this church. I would say there's an excitement. The Spirit is working. There's a refreshing, empowering I I know it. I I sense it. I've loved the process of learning Ephesians with the staff. But church, we need to be on our knees and praying this on a regular basis. And so what I want to do is I actually want to have an invitation for us to be on our knees. He tells you, I bow my knees by my Father. If you're able, I would invite you to be on your knees and to ask God to do this, for ourselves, for the church, for our families. Let me encourage you, parents, as I was reflecting on this, I just think about the heart of so many of you to see your kids love and follow Jesus Christ. Parents, there's no way that rules in your house, there's no way that you're even teaching to them alone is going to manifest that. That's a part of it. But we should be on our knees saying, God, would you please strengthen them in their inner being? to see these things, that you would cause them to see it. And if they don't have your spirit, would you grant them your spirit to be on our knees before the Lord, that we would regularly pray this. This isn't a prayer where you go, well, I prayed that last year. Is there anything new? No, you always pray this. Paul, some places say, I do not cease to pray for you. He's praying. So church, this is what I want us to do. I want us to take a time, a couple minutes, Before we close in song, and as we close in song, you may remain. I would encourage you, remain on your knees. But I'm going to invite you to come and be on your knees. You can stay in your seat, turn around. You can come up here. You can pray with family on your knees. Do what you want. If you're able, I invite you, pray these things. Pray these things, church, because the Lord knows we need them. Let's pray.